Dr. Russell Jaffe, welcome to The New School. Pleasure to be here. Russ, you are uh, a physician uh, trained in uh, pathology, uh, clinical pathology. You were a senior staff physician in clinical pathology at the National Institutes of Health. You were the director of the Princeton Bio Center in Princeton, New Jersey, founded by Carl Pfeiffer. Uh, you were the founding chair of the scientific committee of the American Holistic Medical Association. And among many other things, you're the founder of two companies. One is called Perk, am I pronouncing it right? Correct. Which is a nutritional supplement company. And the second company, I'm not sure I have the name right, is it called Eliza Act? Eliza Act Biotechnologies. Right. And Eliza Act, uh, you developed a lymphocyte response assay that enables physicians to measure food and chemical sensitivities. Um, and um, you've been coming out to Commonweal since 1979. Yes. Uh, when you came out in the very early days of Commonweal, which was founded in 1975, uh, with an extraordinary Buddhist uh, monk named Bhante, uh, who you stayed very close to right until the end of his years. life. 18 years. And he died at the age of? Either 110 or 112, depending on whether you count his passport or his birth certificate. Right. So, um, and I was reflecting, at, at the New School, we have the wonderful opportunity to talk to many extraordinary people, um, but you are singularly at home in everything from the physiological microcosm to the macrocosm from everything from the cell to the or the subcellular structure to the cosmos from everything from nanotechnology to the nature of light i was talking with russ over lunch and uh we began what is the name of our colleague in amherst uh, who wrote that wonderful art, art science art science who wrote a beautiful book on the nature of light i don't remember the name of it uh, but you remarked, I asked you if you agreed with science on the nature of light. Science is an uh, anthroposophical thinker. And you said you did and that you were a, a great believer in Goethe's theory, theory of color. Hmm. And that science's position is that with all the science we've done on light, that we still don't understand light. And, and Russ was saying that he believed in Goethe's theory of color. And so here is a man who uh, is a scientist, but also a... Uh, an extraordinarily open thinker. Um, or easily bored, as the case may be. Or easily bored, as the case may be. <laughs> or, or had a Jewish mother, if any of you know, know of that status. <laughs> I just want to read you a couple of quotes just to give you a sense. Russ sends me a little manuscript for comment. It's 80 pages, and the title is Anthropogenic Influences on Biota, Connections to Disorders and Imbalances of Our Time. Interpretations of 21st Century Punctuated Equilibria and Predictive Perturbations, Implication for Sustainable and Affordable Health. And, and he goes on at some length. Um, but he talks about his cross-training uh, in the healing arts that grew out of curiosity about philosophies of care and their evidence base. Training in allopathic, osteopathic, naturopathic, Ayurvedic, homeopathic, anthroposophic, and traditional Chinese medicine has been integrated with acupuncture, biochemistry, sociobiology, quantum biophysics, functional integration such as Feldenkrais technique, Milton's Traeger mentastics, and mindfulness practices from many traditions. So you get a, a sense, at least of Easily the, bored. <laughs> of the frame of reference that Russ is working with. 
But I, I thought the way, the way we described the talk, the alkaline way, diet, supplements, detoxification, and real healthcare reform, I thought what would be really most useful with all of this is to talk about how we can affect our own health in fundamental ways. And I have to say that Russ is one of the uh, four or five physicians that my wife Cheryl and I look to for guidance in our own health. And uh, what is really unusual about Russ is that he combines as a physician this extraordinary uh, sensitivity as a clinician and uh, a guide to healing practices at the personal level with this broad frame of reference. So, um, Russ, let's start with the alkaline way. Uh, what is a brief description of the alkaline way? Uh, this is a paraphrase of someone else's great quote, but it's that cells, and this starts with any eukaryotic cells, not just applicable to people, cells are alkaline by design and acidic by function. So we have our first potential for a dialectic confusion. But cells function just on the higher side, on the alkaline side of neutral, in a very narrow range, and even a little bit of extra acid, which really means a lack of buffering minerals, is enough to shift the cell from resilient, healthful, energetic, to survival mode. And this metabolic acidosis actually underlies most of what we call chronic degenerative and autoimmune disease. Now let me just ask right there, is metabolic acidosis, does it always trigger inflammation or is that one of the possibilities? Ah, one of the possibilities. Mm -hmm. So the acidosis means that your resilience tolerance repair factors are reduced now tell me what toxin stress or situation you are in, and then I can predict where the breakthrough of suffering, swelling, inflammation, which is really repair deficit, comes from. So what are the pillars of the alkaline way? Hmm. The pillars of the alkaline way are that, um, as we understand it, is that you put physiology, psychology, and pharmacognosy before pharmacology. And what is pharmacognosy? Pharmacognosy is the forgotten science of natural products, nature's pharmacy. Mm -hmm. There used to be departments of pharmacognosy in every medical center along with pharmacology. Mm -hmm. And today, most pharmacologists can't spell pharmacognosy. So that's how far we've come in one generation. And so let's start with the most obvious starting place, which is the basic diet. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the basic diet that promotes uh, the alkaline way? Right. It would be foods that then are rich in these buffering minerals and related buffering elements. That means colorful, darker tend to be more alkaline. Um, there's no editorial here, but avoid the white foods. The things that look anemic are. Um, it comes down to fruits and vegetables, pulses, beans, lentils, sprouts, seasonings, nuts, herbs, and a few other things thrown in, but fermented foods. I should always mention fermented foods. That's what, that's what eating alkaline is. And it's not that you eat 100% of that, but if you're recovering 80%, eight parts of what is on your plate, you can make it more complicated, but we try to make it simple. 
80% of the volume of what you eat should be on the alkaline side of a chart called the Food Effects on Body Chemistry chart, available on the web, both in color and black and white, depending on which you prefer. Good. And, and we had to derive that because nobody had done that before. So we find problems in human nutritional biochemistry or function and seek solutions. So we're solution-oriented. And you say that this, this alkaline diet has been present in all cultures, that it's in all wisdom traditions? Yes, it was, you know, it's like when I was really confused, I went out to try and understand all different approaches, assuming that they all had validity and they do in their context. But what was remarkable to me were some of these common, basic fundamentals, like the alkaline way, that the in every cuisine, so you can eat any way you want, but the healthiest way to eat within every cuisine will turn out to be the alkaline way. Go talk to the mystics about what they eat, it's the alkaline way. Uh, look across anthropologic studies of healthy diets. Uh, people had good dentition and kept their gingiva, you know, the mouth is a window on the body. People whose skin was healthy at 80 or 100 or were starting their fourth family at those ages um, and expecting to dance at their children's weddings. Um, they too had Jew Jewish mothers, by the way. Um, Jewish mothers take credit for any success. So, and you also have a few um, rules of thumb about, for example, hydration you yes. regard. And you showed me a little test you can do where you... The back of your palm has skin. You can gently pinch. Don't have to pinch hard enough. You can just gently pinch, tent the skin, and let it go, and it should go flat immediately. And I'm a cup of water down. Really, yesterday I was fine. Today I need a cup of water. It's that instantaneous, and if I drink this and another glass of water in an hour, I'll be fine. So you can test if you're dehydrated. Even a little dehydrated is too much. Batman Jelic, a doctor, wrote this book called You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty, or Your Body is Not Sick, You're Thirsty, but Batman Jelic... <laughs> Go spell Batman Jelic. Um, I can get the spelling for you if anyone is interested. But a wonderful guy who wrote the book while imprisoned in Iran because he was of the wrong faith at the time, and he thought he was going to die and should pass something on, um, came to Falls Church, Virginia. I didn't meet him when he was in prison. I met him in Falls Church. But the notion that marginal, what we in medicine call marginal dehydration. Serious dehydration is when you die of thirst. Okay, But marginal dehydration is 3% down and that's too much. Makes your heart beat faster than it wants to, makes you more irritable, reduces restorative sleep, impairs digestion, and that's just makes for the me beginning. Makes me want to drink a water. Have, have a drink, have a drink. I have, I have a rule of thumb. Michael was asking for rules of thumb, and I only have two thumbs, so there won't be many rules. Uh, but if you, you could put a carafe of potable, drinkable water, now you have to ask me later what potable, drinkable means in our society, but you put a carafe of drinkable water in front of you, you put a glass. If the glass is empty, you fill it. If the glass is full, you drink it. And just keep doing that all day. Now, let's ask you what potable drinkable water is. Ah, free of all the schmutz. Mm -hmm. It's a very technical term, but it includes toxic metals, it includes solvent residues, it includes hormone disruptors, persisting organic pollutants, the schmutz. And how do you get water of that quality? You go down to the third aquifer and you have a well, as we do in our mm -hmm. places, fortunately. Or sometimes your community may have an artesian well. You can go with a jug and fill it up. And if it comes out of the ground directly and nobody's messed with it and put it in a bottle, probably, probably, okay, still should be checked. If you can't do that 
and you want a home system, then unfortunately, in my opinion, you end up with a roughly $10,000 system that sterilizes itself and it backflushes and it's got three cartridges and it's a whole complicated thing because there's a lot of schmutz in the water. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know about the 995 solution to it. But if you can get a deep third aquifer water, and you will know that because it's so cold that the plumber will tell you, oh, this is from the third aquifer. It's exactly 53 degrees. Uh, we, we had this in, in, in Virginia. The plumber comes, and I want to know if it's good water. And he puts his finger under there for 30 seconds. He says, oh, this is so cold, it has to be good water. The first aquifer, the groundwater, oh, oh, oh no, no. Mm -hmm. Second aquifer, mm, probably contaminated, oh, oh no, no, no. Mm -hmm. But down below, nature is purifying the water. And that water in the third aquifer has been there a long time. Nobody's messed so with it. So probably, for those of us who can't afford $10,000 systems, right. Uh, community systems that yes. provided water that has been adequately filtered might be a good investment for yes. communities to consider. Yes, and the question that wasn't asked is about can you distill the water, but be careful because when you distill the water, it has to be a three-cartridge system. You don't want the stuff that comes over to mix in with the stuff you're collecting. And then you've taken away whatever minerals were there. Minerals are good. Hard water is good to drink, not for your pipes or not for your clothes, but good for drinking. Hard water means mineral. All the health spas, all those waters, are mineral rich. Uh, San Pellegrino, if you can afford it, is a very good alkaline mineral water. Or you can spend $15 for a pound of Celtic sea salt. So we spend $15 for a pound of sea salt. You don't need much of it. A little pinch of that will go a long way. But you can add that back to the distilled water if you want to. And that's a less expensive process. Th far. That is a less expensive process. And, and it's... it's it's just on the edge of being messed with, but not too much. Mm -hmm. So I think it is possibly an okay solution, but you've got to add the minerals back. Mm -hmm. Don't just drink distilled water, because mineral poor water will pull the minerals out of you. So another uh, point that, that you make is that we now have a, a wonderful way of measuring our bodily pH with uh, first morning urine uh, strips very inexpensively, which is a way of assessing whether we're achieving on a daily basis the alkaline balance that we need. Exactly right. We specialize in pennies a day self-tests that will save you years to decades of discomfort or suffering. Yeah. Uh, you can take the first morning urine after rest. That urine has equilibrated with the bladder and kidneys. And you take a strip, just like Michael said, tear off an inch or two. You can pee directly on it. You can pee in a cup and then dip it in, but it's got to be fresh urine. And then there's a color reaction. You measure it against a color chart. And the goal is six and a half to seven and a half. A little bit of extra acid that the body gets rid of. That's okay, but if you're below six and a half, you're lacking minerals. Increase your vegetable juices, vegetable broths, high mineral foods like the dark juices and the lentils and the beans. Um, or take it through minerals uh, like ionized magnesium and multi-mineral supplements, but then you have to make sure it gets in you, and the way to make sure it gets in, you could take it, but it could just pass through. If you want to know whether it gets into you in a meaningful way, check your urine tomorrow. And a very famous doctor who will remain nameless because of the story did this and called me two nanoseconds later and says, my urine is pH 5.5, am I dying? I said, doctor, we're, we're all dying. It's only a question of when, but not today. And please, a deep breath and relax, and we'll get you some vegetable broth, and you'll feel better. He did. Yeah. So 
in addition to hydration, mm. in addition with good water, right. uh, checking, eating an alkaline diet, checking your pH to make mm -hmm. sure you're getting it, you also put a lot of emphasis on transit time in the, in the diet. Eat the foods that you can digest, assimilate, and eliminate. Eat the foods that will rot, will rot and will spoil, but eat them before they do. This means foods that are high in fiber prebiotics to feed the probiotics, eat lots of fermented foods, um, eat foods that you have to chew. Do you know, I ask people how many bites, how many times they have to chew to swallow their food. The average number is chew. Okay, that's how far we've gone. Now, you don't have to go to Yule Gibbons. You know, you don't have to chew on tree bark. Um, you're too young to remember Yule Gibbons. But you, you, you don't have to chew on these things that are very, very, very chewy. But the less you chew, the more you need extra fiber supplements. This comes from Dennis Burkett. Uh, he got the Nobel Prize for something else, but uh, he found out why in Africa there's essentially no uh, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel disease. It just doesn't exist there. In traditional societies, it's come in in the urban um, society. Uh, but they don't have it because they eat lots of fiber. So you can measure transit time either with charcoal or beets, for example. Beets, corn, anything that won't digest, you can measure with. But when red comes out your tush, even I, I will eat beets myself, and then the next day I see the red coming out because healthy is 12 to 18 hours. Even if you know that, when you see red coming out of your tush, you're a little concerned for a moment. So we recommend the charcoal capsules. They are dioxin-free for anyone who's concerned. Rayqua makes them, and then they're repackaged by a lot of people. But REQUA makes them for the whole world. Okay. And um, so that sort of takes us through, in a certain sense, the, the easy part of, uh, of this, uh, which is getting a good diet, drinking water, measuring transit time, uh, measuring alkaline PA, acid alkaline pH. Then we get into the more complicated stuff, which uh, are detoxification and supplements. So I think detox is a little easier than supplements. So let's start with detox. So uh, my understanding is that you divide the chemicals that we need to detox into three categories, metals, solvents, and persistent organic pollutants. Is that basically right? Yes, yes, and I didn't do that, but I picked up on it. Okay. I think it was Seligman who originally did this, but okay. these are the three major categories. And each one of them requires a different approach. Is that oh, absolutely. Correct? So let's start with the metals. Right. The metals in this case mostly mean lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, uh, and nickel. Um, there are now some exotic ones like beryllium and um, uh, stable strontium, stable uranium, but those are less common. But the big ones are the lead, mercury, cadmium, arsenic, and nickel, and in case you doubt it, you had a daily dose, it's only a question of how much. That's and if you're alive. So. How do you approach uh, getting rid of metal? Well, I approach uh, everything from the physiology, psychology, pharmacognosy before pharmacology approach. What that translates to is the foods that will bind up and that nature designed to bind safely the toxic metals. And these are high sulfur foods. There are five. We call them Thrive with Five. Garlic, onions, ginger, brassica, sprouts, and eggs. You need one or more on a daily basis to neutralize the toxic metals that are in the air, water, food, you know, just walking around. Uh, you don't need all of them every day, but these turn out to be the superfoods of healing societies. If you had hemorrhoids 
in Turkey, a boiled onion would often be put against your tush. And it sounds very silly, but the flavonoids, the coercidin, comes out of the boiled onion and is actually a repair molecule. So th there are um, lots of silly stories and then, then some more substantive ones that illustrate that nature provides the antidote always. And if we take uh, a correct balance between the toxin and the antitoxin, we can survive even in the marinating soup that's around us. So you said onion, garlic, what are the other the three? The five are onions, garlic, brassica sprouts, ginger, and eggs. And eggs? Eggs. Eggs, the yellow, the yolk, not the white, is a high sulfur food. Imagine when they spoil what they smell like. And so high sulfur foods. Now, if you don't want to have eggs, well, have more onions. And if, you don't, if you're allergic to onions, have ginger tea as the beverage of choice. One or more, you don't need all of them. I think you mentioned a test of metal metallothionine yes, that, yes. that enables you to test. Yes, yes. With all of these toxic metals and what we're being exposed to, how come we're able to have these conversations? How come we're not all you know, neurologically and in other ways impaired? Healthy people produce a sponge that soaks up toxic metals. It's a glycine, cysteine, polypeptide with magnesium and zinc stuck on it for the technical people. But it's a sponge that soaks up toxic metals and safely removes them from the body. And but that can when be measured. Oh, yes, yes. You can quantify the metallothionine in your saliva, in your stool, in your plasma, in your spinal fluid. They're all different ones in different places. Burt Valley and others made a whole career out of measuring these things. It's finally, after many decades, coming into clinical practice. As a biochemist, I have the good fortune of reading or knowing about literature 10 to 20 years before clinicians hear about it, so you can think about these things. So the second area after metals is solvents. And there, I think you recommend sweating and low-temperature saunas. Is that correct? Exactly. But there's one little footnote on the toxic metals. Yeah. If you want to quantify both the good beneficial minerals and the toxic metals, you can do a D-penicillamine provocation test. It's the D-penicillamine provocation of Jaffe, and we can send you the, the long protocol, but that's that. So now let's move Thank on to the you. solvents. Solvents are volatile. These are the volatile organic chemicals, the chloroforms and the dichloromethanes and stuff like that that you uh, hopefully didn't come in contact with as a young person, heaven forfend. Uh, but you probably do if you drink the water that's commercially treated, because when you use chlorine to sterilize water, uh, surprise, surprise, chlorinated compounds come out, including these solvents, chloroform, things like that. Um, and since they are volatile, if you just raise the temperature, you can get your sweat pores to release them. So there's a temperature band that releases the solvents, which, remember, are fat-soluble, and it's 105 to 110 degrees. And you stay in there as long as it takes for an oily sheen to form on your skin, and then you quickly get out and have a shower with a loofah and castile soap or a washcloth and some gentle soap so that you strip off what has just sweated out of you because it will get reabsorbed if you don't do that. So low-temperature saunas to mobilize sweat oils to get solvents out. Uh, colleagues who do this a lot and study the people in this situation will often report 
that the sauna begins to smell like benzene or xylene or toluene or things you wouldn't think could be in people. But in my day as a scientist, we used to go in without any protection, and actually some of us liked to stay in there for a while. The aromas kind of gave us a little high, but we survived it. And today, they wear bunny suits and all sorts of protection, and, and heaven forfend one molecule of this should come around. It's a whole hysteria, and I think the hysteria is actually, the pendulum has swung from one side to the other in that regard. But low-temperature saunas to get rid of the solvent residues if they're in you, and if you want to know whether they're in you, go in a low-temperature sauna for a couple of hours and then have someone else smell, because you might not be able to smell it because you adapt to your own aromas, including the solvents that are in you. Now, the low-temperature saunas, are those electro-infrared or something like that? Or the infrared sauna companies will tell you how good infrared saunas are. The other sauna companies will tell you that 105 to 110 degrees is not very hot. If you're going in a water-sweat sauna, then the infrared actually has some advantage. Now, infrared does penetrate the skin a little more than other uh, sources, but infrared just means heat. Infrared just means friction. So there's not so, a problem with electromagnetic field stuff with those? Uh, well, there's not generally a problem for most people, and then there are some people who actually have to use wood-fired saunas because uh, the uh, electricity generated infrareds, the electromagnetic fields that Michael is talking about, do affect some people. And how do I know that? Because they tell me so. Okay. No, I, I, I believe what people tell me, especially if I can fool them, but not fool their body. In other words, put someone in a box and tell them there's electromagnetic noise, but there isn't, or the, or the reverse. And, and the, sometimes we do this because, you know, on the one hand, you want to give the benefit of the doubt to the person who is suffering, but sometimes the mind plays plays games. So right. it is physiology, psychology, and pharmacognosy. So the third category after metals and solvents were persistent organic pollutants. And how do you detox from that? Well, if you weren't terrified before, now it gets really bad. Um, the persisting organic pollutants, the hormone disruptors, the biocides, the organophosphate uh, neurotoxins, things like that, the things that impair your hormonal neurochemical immune system. Um, you can conjugate these. You can complex them with things that make them more water-soluble, make them less free radical, make them less oxidative, make them less harmful. And then you can, if you're really healthy and energetic, mobilize them, get them out of the body. But if you don't conjugate them, guess where they stay? Wherever they are. And they tend to concentrate in all the places you wouldn't want them. I could go through the list in the body, but exactly the places you wouldn't want them is where they pass through and get stuck. So the, the answer, now this comes from Mel Brooks, the 2,000-year-old man, is don't do that. Mm -hmm. right. So how, how do you, what's a simple way of right. getting rid of it? Um, there are phase one, phase two, and phase three detoxification systems in the body. There is something we've developed called Detoxin Guard that is a phase one, phase two, phase three detoxifier. Why? Because it's so complicated to know. Do you need phase one and two and a half of phase two and a half of phase three? You may need all of them. So we assume you do, and so we give the substrates to allow the body to uh, do what it was meant to do, but it usually lacks the molecules. It lacks the choline and inositol. It lacks the magnesium and the calcium. It lacks the methionine, the cysteine, the phenylalanine, the tyrosine, the things that induce the detoxification systems. So we put them all together because we're not smart enough to figure it out, but nature told us this is what nature wanted, and 
we trust nature. I have a note here that says ascorbate recalibration. Does that mean that ascorbate recalibration is related to getting rid of the POPs, or is that? Yes, yeah, okay. very much so, because these POPs and a whole bunch of other things are oxidative stresses. You can think of oxidative stresses as the things that wear you out, rust you, and make you age and suffer. So generally, they're in the you-don't-want-them category. And antioxidants, the things that get depleted when you process the food and uh, ship it a long distance and uh, harvest it before it's vine-ripened and so forth, antioxidants are the antidotes. Ascorbate is the principal human antioxidant. Ascorbate is called vitamin C, but it's not a vitamin, so I don't refer to it as vitamin C. Uh, but ascorbates, especially the fully mineralized, fully buffered, fully reduced forms, are what nature uses to protect from oxidative stress, because oxidative stress has been with us uh, since uh, evolution started. And if uh, you weren't able to protect from oxidative stress, you wouldn't be here. So, um so that ascorbate recalibration really brings us to our third topic. We've talked about uh, diet. Uh, we've talked about uh, sub. Uh, we talked about detox. Um, and now we get to what, for me, in thirty years of following integrative and holistic medicine, has been, as you know, Russ, the most complicated question for me, which is nutritional supplements, mm. because. I can follow, as a non-scientist, the dietary stuff. I can more or less get the detox. Mm -hmm. But the supplements are like a black box. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the, uh, I think, let me just say my own thoughts just for a start. There's been this enormous movement forward into the articulation by Jeff Bland and many others of a whole theory of functional medicine. And mm -hmm. you've been part of that yes. movement and many others as well. Um, and so the theory of functional medicine is, is pretty well developed and calls for supplementation. Right. But what is striking to me is that, uh, and I've talked to a number of colleagues about this, is that if you gave three leading functional medicine physicians the same uh, live case study, the same lab results, and asked them each to design a supplement program, you'd get three different supplement programs. And on top of that, you have the incredible complexity of the supplement industry. And you and I agree that, that it's a terribly uh, deficient system of manufacture, testing, evaluation, oversight, and so forth. So just to start with, let's just start by recognizing that the issue of supplements is an unbelievably complicated and difficult one, right? Absolutely. Uh, you said to me in a conversation that from your point of view, uh, the, the starting point, let's just start with a starting point, is Roger Williams' important theory of biochemical individuality. 1950s. What is biochemical individuality? Your faces and fingerprints are unique, right? Mm -hmm. Does anybody doubt that? Right. So is your biochemistry. He showed it in bunny rabbits, he showed it in people. At the age of 96, he was vibrantly healthy, still talking about it, uh, wondering when medicine was going to pick up on it. But those who understood physiology understood that this gentleman, and he really was a gentleman, was not just a brilliant scientist and president of the American Ch uh, Chemical Society, uh, but uh, was telling us that we are each unique and distinctive beings. And we know most about us because we've been with us most 
of the time, hopefully. Because um, if you leave yourself behind, it's very complicated. Um, so, so Roger Williams' biochemical individuality is the place to begin. And if you go down the reductionist and mechanistic thinking line, which is what I was trained in in Western medicine, allopathic medicine, it does get unbelievably complicated, and then it gets even more complicated because of what Michael said. The regulatory uh, law, the regulatory climate is so conflicted that good words can be used to wrap around empty promises. And what people like me do is start from active ingredients and say only if this ingredient has been shown beneficial and safe in a clinical study will we use it. No workalikes. Do you know how much Mother Nature likes to be fooled? Oh, she'll take a, a, a thing and hit you. Um, it is not possible to fool nature, but in nutritional supplementation and in nutritional science, uh, there were very important people who said all calories are equal, empty, full, doesn't matter. Not so. Um, paid a lot of money to say that, but not, still not so. Um, supplementation, in my opinion, can get simple if you start with the forms that were shown beneficial in clinical studies, you combine them in ways that respect their delicate nature, because most of them are very delicate, they can be damaged in manufacturing, and then you have somebody other than the one who made it and you, a third party, uh, test to make sure that what you thought was there is still there in the form you think it is, otherwise um, you shouldn't sleep at night. So at a formal level, some of the things that should be in place, what the FDA should do about nutritional supplements, include, first of all, what you call standards of identity. Which Absolutely. Mean, which means what? Yes. This is something we pioneered as a biochemist. I wanted to make sure that every time someone sent me an ingredient, it was the same. Does so then, anyone remember contaminated tryptophan? Right. Okay. Does, is anyone uh, concerned that a manufacturer can substitute, hey, I'm out of this. Uh, down the road is another uh, company that I don't own, but do they have a thing that kind of has the same label on it? Can I have some of yours? Well, all over the world you can do this. And if you don't have a standard of identity that must be maintained, they cannot change the manufacturing technique or anything about the procedure without our written permission. Now, that's now, this required is a, in, pharma, in pharmaceuticals. Yes, yes, yes. This yeah. is required in pharmaceuticals. And so much of what I'm saying to you is the good part of pharmaceutical quality control that, in my opinion, should be applied to everything you can take. Okay. So... And in our conversations about this, you, you said from your point of view that, that, that when you look at the way the, the supplement industry really works, that very often 99% of the cost of what you buy is the wrapper, the bottle, the transport system, and just a few Did you percent. ever wonder how they could sell you three for one and free shipping? Just figure out what the label, the bottle, the cap, the overhead is like, and there's so little left that, as Michael's saying, it could be like 1% of the cost goes into the goods. Well, the goods is what goes into you. You don't eat the bottle, however pretty it is. Infomercials are very expensive. Marketing is very expensive. I am in the industry. This is how I know some of this stuff. But our approach was to put into the cost of goods what most companies put into marketing. 
because if you feel the difference, you'll want to come back. And if you can only get it from a professional source, which is the way we set it up, then you'll get the guidance to know how to combine it. So you get enough, but not too much. One of the other points that you make about uh, the nature of putting together supplements or supplement programs is that whatever substance is is least, is lacking, will control the whole system. Could you just say a word yes, about yes. that? This is von Liebig's law back in 1842, just as von Liebig says, whatever is least available in a complex system, like a cell or a person, is going to control the whole system. Is, is that? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the headline. Now we updated that and it's as true today as it was then. Mm -hmm. So, that, let's just take that as a brief snapshot of the supplements issue. Let's move on to food and chemical sensitivity mm. testing. Mm. Now, your other company, and again, I want to acknowledge, you know, there's a certain sensitivity about talking to somebody who's in the industry of creating supplements or, or creating tests, and, and, and I've thought a lot about that, but it's... You wouldn't think twice about talking to a physician from Harvard who was involved with the pharmaceutical industry about his work. And it's, it's a strange you can't double talk standard. You can Harvard who's not involved with yeah. pharmaceuticals. So it's a strange double standard in a way that, yes. that we, are, we feel a little strange about talking to somebody who's in the supplement industry about supplements, but would be happy to talk to a researcher at a major university who was involved with pharmaceuticals. So I just want to acknowledge the discomfort and say, you know what, we have to have these conversations, we have to have them with people who really understand, you know, pharmacognosy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the use of natural substances. So, so in your work with food and chemical sensitivities, um, which, as you know, we, we started in the earliest days of Commonweal looking at food and chemical sensitivities and have followed that field for 30 years. Um, what does your assay do? What, right. what does it do? Um, it measures the immune memory cells. So you have white blood cells called lymphocytes, some of which you were born with and others of which have been born since, and they carry the memory of your immune recognition or reaction to things that are foreign. Now, that's the, the headline. So lymphocyte response assays have been done for a long time. But before our technology, it took one ounce of blood to measure one substance, and if you wanted to measure all the foods and chemicals, you just took all the blood of the patient, and that's not good for repeat business. So we figured out how to micro-miniaturize it, and so instead of taking one ounce to do one substance in three weeks with a 30% variance, we can do 400 lymphocyte response assays on one ounce of blood in three hours with a 3% variance day to day. So now you have something that's reproducible and consistent, and you can do outcome studies as we have in fibromyalgia muscle pain and chronic fatigue immune dysfunction syndrome as mystery syndromes, or in type 1 and type 2 diabetes as classic autoimmune syndromes, and we have the most successful outcome studies, albeit on small numbers of people, but powerful statistical significance, uh, showing that this total approach, what we could call the alkaline way or restoration of tolerance, uh, is not only practicable, because these were people in the community, not people in a medical center, uh, but that you can show, compared to the best available standards of care, better outcomes at lower cost and much lower risk. Speaking briefly, parenthetically, about fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, uh, these are among the contested diseases, or CDs, as they are called. 
you know, physicians are uncomfortable diagnosing and treating them and so on. What is your perspective on how do you sort of look at fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, perhaps Lyme's disease, um, food and chemical sensitivities? They all belong in different ways um, in that cluster. How Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, the image for fibromyalgia is very often the, the sculpture of the three graces, and that's because there are certain points of tenderness. If you have 10, you don't quite qualify, but if you have 11 out of 17, you do. This shows you how medicine works. Um, the notion that you can have pain that doesn't respond to painkillers, steroids, or even tranquilizers or narcotics uh, is, is quite counterintuitive. If a doctor can't take away your owie, the doctor doesn't, is not comfortable. So there are people who say it's either in the mind of the patient, the pain I'm talking about now, or in the mind of the doctor. Except that with better science, John Russell has shown that substance P, which is a very irritating molecule, gets dripped onto the nerve endings of people with fibromyalgia and not with people who don't. So now it is becoming a, a, an acceptable diagnosis, um, albeit very hard to differentiate from reflex sympathetic dystrophy, very hard to differentiate from certain other kinds of chronic diseases, the overlap between fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue immune dysfunction syndrome is very high, which means the diagnostic precision is very low, which means we don't know. But the three hardest words for most doctors to say are, I don't know. Now, we should be able to say that because there's a lot we don't know. What about Lyme's disease? Lyme's is definitely in this continuum, uh, but with the addition that if you have classic Lyme's, you have this thing called a bullseye, and it reflects the immune reaction, the interaction between T-class lymphocytes and the organism, the Borrelia or the Ehrlichia or the Rickettsia organism. And if you uh, exclude those three, we'll find some uh, Babesia organism that does the same thing. So these mystery syndromes, to me, to the physiology, psychology, pharmacognosy world, say that we are hospitable at a very deep level to things that we should be able to avoid because we didn't sit around in a previous generation with so many people saying, oy vey, and nothing makes it better. Now, you can take enough tranquilizers that people are so dopey that they say, yes, I'm in pain, but I don't care anymore. Okay, but that's not a treatment, and no one that I know of really considers that an effective treatment. Um, so one, the diagnosis is often like beauty in the eye of the beholder, and number two, um, when you take this functional approach where you want to look at the causes of good and ill health, you set aside the diagnosis. And sometimes the most helpful thing I think I've done as a physician is to explain to people that they don't really fit the full diagnosis. And frankly, more people have died from their diagnosis than their disease. So why don't we just assume you're unique and let's look at the underlying causes, the alkaline way and the delayed allergies by lymphocyte response assays and the toxic burden that could be undermining your repair mechanisms. And we can get fairly sophisticated about that, but not in three minutes. Um, so there are better and better functional tests that need to be brought from the bench to the clinic more rapidly. Information's doubling in less than four years. It takes 20 years to get a new technology uh, from the from this scientific proof into the practice of medicine. That's too long a delay. So 
these, as you say, are very brief summaries of very complex issues. But having covered diet, having covered detox, having covered supplements and food and chemical sensitivity, let's pull all this together and look at its implications for real health care reform. What is your view of the health care reform uh, approach that's being taken in Washington right now? The cats and jammer kids meet the Keystone Cops. <laughs> there are some extremely competent, dedicated people who have spent their lives preparing for this discussion, and they would have liked to have it a long time ago, but sooner rather than later. And with all respect to that, um, the filters on fact that permit some things that are to be said that aren't and that deny some things that aren't as if they are is enough to drive a, sane, drive a sane person to drink. And I live 20 minutes from Dulles Airport and 30 minutes from the Capitol by choice or by karma. Um, and uh, we do try to make sense. Uh, generally, it takes individuals who get so sick that nobody else can help them, and then when you can, they're grateful. And there are enough of those people in Washington that there is some movement. Um, but it is extremely hard to do good in this world, what else is new? Uh, in regard to healthcare reform, the meaningful discussion about primary proactive prevention, which saves money in the short and long run, the meaningful discussion about payment reform, cannot be had because the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, won't score them. And they said eight months ago that they won't score prevention and they won't score payment reform because they're complicated. They are, they're complicated. I want to know what they look at that's simple. You don't ask the CBO to score things that are simple. But for some reason, primary proactive prevention, which means good old-fashioned public health, if your environment is cleaner, if you're nicer to each other, if you have wholer foods and healthier water in sufficient amounts, if you believe that your children or your loved ones will have a better life tomorrow, not a worser life, those are all positives for social cohesiveness. We're even talking to people about health and housing because if you're poor, you're likely to be unwell, and if you're sick, you're likely to be poor. They are actually linked, we think inexorably, with one another at all levels. You can be unwell and rich, but you won't be rich for long because you can have a walletectomy just from an emergency room visit. This is a very important procedure now that's done almost invisibly, you know, it's done electronically. So, when you think about health care reform, and, and in talking with you over a number of months about this and actually sitting in on one of your health care reform seminars in Washington, I've come to understand that, that you have two other primary references other than the work that you do on primary mm -hmm. proactive prevention. One is, is Don Berwick mm -hmm. at Harvard. Mm -hmm. The second is Elliot Fisher at Dartmouth. And the third is primary proactive prevention, which you and others have worked on. Mm -hmm. So let's just take briefly mm -hmm. Don Berwick right. uh, at his Institute for Healthcare Improvement at Harvard. So my understanding is that he is the master of understanding how we should do hospital and related care. Is that right? His triple aim is better health, better care, lower cost. Right. And you achieve this by checklists so that the surgeons and the nurses actually have to wash their hands. This would save 50,000 lives 
and make most nosocomial infections go away. And other things that are more sophisticated in information technology, in discovering that the telephone has been invented or that email exists in regard to medical practices. Um, moving to Elliot Fisher for a moment, but related to Don Berwick's work, and they are both exceptional individuals. Elliot has shown that of the 900 million office visits in America, 600 million are due to the fact that the telephone and the email do not exist in medical practices. And that you could get information to people more quickly, you could reduce their anxiety, you could even avoid a certain number of automobile accidents if the 600 million extra office visits didn't need to happen. And then the doctor who only has to have, then the doctors over the country who have 300 million, one third the number of office visits could spend 15 minutes with you instead of five. And maybe find out how you're feeling, not just what your symptom is. And you also mentioned with Elliot Fisher, who's the, the primary person with something called the Dartmouth Health Atlas. Yes, yes. If you know that by zip code, it costs less in Green Bay than in Boston or Newark. In fact, it costs twice as much for the same procedure in Newark or Boston, and you get better outcomes in Green Bay. But you can't all go to Green Bay. They don't have enough doctors there. So sometimes conservative common sense management with a lack of super specialization, each test of which has its own small but sometimes cumulative risk. Last year, 40% of all we spent was for oops. 40%, a trillion dollars was spent to decrease the average life of an American by three to seven years and increase their suffering. How many are in favor of this? I don't see many hands, it's a tape. So, just sort of encapsulate this, if we did what Don Berwick is nationally recognized for at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, better health, better care, lower cost, simple things. Save that, a million lives. That's the other tagline of the IHI triple aim. Not just better health, better care, lower cost, but in, oh, by the way, there's a dividend here called save a million lives over a decade. Right. By and reducing the number of complications, mostly in institutional or hospital-based care. A revolving door hospital where you're released early only to be readmitted within the next month is not good quality care. And I don't know many people who say it is, but it happens a lot, unfortunately. Right. And, and there are financial incentives for that system. You, we pay today for tasks and procedures and guess what? If you pay for tasks and procedures, people will do more of them. And if you pay them less per task and procedure, they will find out how to do more of them. Now, that's Elliot Fisher's point. Yes. Pay for outcomes and results, not procedures and tasks. Right. And he calls it an ACO, an accountable care organization, and that doctors should be rewarded for the good health delivered, for the risks reduced, and for the competency demonstrated, not for the number of tasks and procedures performed. But this is extremely contentious because the people who are paid for tax and for, uh, for procedures and tasks are not eager to give up that income. Right. right. Follow the money. I know this is going to be a big surprise to you, but follow the money. Right. I, I'm a recovering allopath. <laughs> So I have an MD and a PhD from Boston University. I'm very proud of my alma mater. I was taught in trade school. Med school is a trade school. I was taught what to do, when to do it, uh, watch one, do one, teach one. I'm an honors graduate of that approach to medicine. Then friends said to me, just a few years before I met Michael, actually, um, that the mind was connected with the body. 
that removing the obstacles to cure was a good idea. Uh, that you are what you eat and drink, think and do. And I thought, huh, that's not in Harrison's textbook of medicine. Oh, actually it is in the first chapter. The philosophy in the first chapter of Harrison's textbook of medicine is absolutely exquisite. It hasn't changed in 60 years, and it's just as good as it was when Osler, more or less, drafted it. After that, it's a completely different world. Um, we have a, a volume that periodically gets updated. It was Healthy Americans 2000. That was released in 1980. In 1990, we released Healthy Americans 2010. And in 2000, we released Healthy Americans 2020. So it's just always 20 years ahead that we're going to have Healthy Americans. The first half of that report, the philosophy, magnifique. The tactical, logistical application implications, we'll get back to you on that. So allopathic medicine is about the body as a machine that breaks down, and we therefore need bionic replacement parts and heroic efforts. Naturopathy is about nature cure, is about removing obstacles to recovery, is about working with the person, not on the person. And thank you, number one son, for yeah, asking that. Rather than fighting disease and creating more in that spectrum, just creating the, the wellness and providing supplements. And, and also bioactive vitamins. Exactly. Because bioactive vitamins don't suppress symptoms. They may create symptoms to a certain extent. And that's just physiology working and working things out. So there'll be sea flushes. There'll be magnesium channel blockers. There'll be all those things that um, the body has built up resistance to over time. But it's, it's a matter of recalibrating to your body and bringing those vitamins back in so they can be absorbed and it takes time. If you take a painkiller, pain's gone. But you take like vitamin C and it takes a long time to rebuild those buffered stores of vitamin C or magnesium or calcium or whatever it is. And I'm pleased to introduce Sky Jaffe who is uh, Russ's son and is an intern in the Commonwealth Garden. And uh, I've been learning a lot from Sky about his numerous forays into some of the fields that he's been describing. You know, Russ, it, it occurs to me that um, one thing that we haven't talked about that is one of those sort of basic things that you recommend is the vitamin C flush. Could you say a little word about that? Because that's, that's key both to assessing, in your view, how much vitamin C you should take, but it's also a key mechanism for detoxification. Is that correct? Exactly right. Uh, ascorbate, the vitamins C, are the source of the electrons that the body uses to make energy. The molecule is called ATP, and if you learn about that, then we have phospholinopyruvate, and it gets more complicated. But the message is that electrons start in the uh, membrane, in the outside of the cell, and then they have to get picked up there by vitamin E and selenomethionine, transferred to vitamin C, then to glutathione. In most cells in the body that are metabolically active, ascorbate is the largest molecule by weight. Okay? And it concentrates 30 times over your blood level in all the metabolically active cells that need to be protected. So small changes in blood level of vitamin C have profound differences in terms of the cell's protection from free radical damage. How much ascorbate do you need? Now, I know there are 500 milligram people, and there are 2 gram people, and there are even some 9 gram people, and then there was Linus Pauling at 18 grams. And 
uh, and I bid 20 grams. Um, there is no dose that everyone needs. If you tell me your half-life, then I can tell you how much you need, but it's really hard and expensive to find out your half-life. But you can take every 15 minutes uh, a half a teaspoon, which is a gram and a half, or a full teaspoon, three grams of buffered ascorbate, should be all L-form, fully buffered, fully reduced. And every 15 minutes, you're adding this ascorbate until you fill up the body's needs, and then toxins and extra fluid are pumped into the rectum and evacuated with a whoosh, with a flush. And it's so distinctive that anyone in the room who has done it will know what I'm talking about, and the rest of you are welcome to talk to them about why you should do it. There's no more motherly molecule in biology than ascorbate. There's no more there's no molecule involved with more protective actions in the body than ascorbate. The reduction, oxidation, redox potential of the cell is set by ascorbate, not by glutathione. If there's a quiz, the answer is ascorbate, not glutathione. Ascorbate in adequate amounts raises glutathione better than anything else. This is Alton Meister's work. We could go on all afternoon. And there are some myths, all of which turn out to be red herrings or purple herrings or you know, herrings, no, no disparagement to herrings now. Um, and so the form of ascorbate you find in nature, the fully reduced L-buffered form, in adequate amounts will protect you from the distress of oxidative free radical formation from the bad chemicals, will be uh, active in making energy and restoring and rebuilding you, will recharge the first-line defense cell system in the body called dendritic cells um, and detoxify you, protect and wrap around toxic metals. For every gram of ascorbate, 20 micrograms of lead or mercury or cadmium or arsenic can get excreted safely from the body. The least expensive, safest way to remove toxic metals is clearly ascorbate. It's not as dramatic as some other therapies or as expensive. And Murray, the press agent, isn't paid to advance it. So a lot of people aren't aware of it, but that's why we give talks like this. And, and is, has anyone in the room, maybe other than Sky, who has done his vitamin C flush, but has anyone else done an ascorbate flush? Have you survived, sir? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I rest my case. Right. And uh, one final point, and then I'm going to open it up for questions. Um, uh, you have done this with a wide variety of different um, health problems, but... Uh, you describe yourself as, as particularly involved with cardiac and autoimmune disorders, and you've also done a lot on autistic spectrum disorders. Mm. So those three areas are areas where this approach is something that you've explored in particular depth. When I was at NIH, I had the privilege of collaborating with the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute on animal models of human heart disease. We were the ones who showed that stress will actually kill you, that oxidative stress oxidizes the fats, oxidized cholesterol and oxidized LDL are cardiotoxic, but cholesterol is an innocent bystander. I'm sure none of you have your cholesterol or your LDL or your HDL me measured. You don't need to know them. You do need to know your oxidized cholesterol. It should be zero. Oxidized LDL, which is buried in the total LDL, should be zero. And if they're zero, you have protected that aspect of cardiovascular disease. Now, there are two other measures, homocysteine. Um, you do need to have a low homocysteine. That means good, strong methylation, a good balance between methionine and homocysteine. And the homocysteine should be less than six. Less than six, that's the goal state. And you should increase your methylation factors like hydroxocobalamin and folate 
maybe DMG and TMG. We have this all in a sublingual in case you're interested. Uh, you should increase your methylation factors if the homocysteine is above six, and you should keep increasing it until you bring it down to six. Uh, and in 95 out of 100 cases, you won't have trouble. In one out of 20 cases, you need a good complicated biochemist to find out what partial block you individually have. Beyond that, the third piece is being acidic. That's the first morning urine pH. You can also do a venous or arterial blood gas. It's more expensive, it's more precise. But Seagard Anderson did 100,000 of them and then he published it and people haven't argued with him since. Mm -hmm. I'd like to open it to questions from other people here. Yes, go ahead. Uh, first one is, could you, could you maybe mention something more about the myths that you mentioned about vitamin C? Oh, sure. Ascorbate, as well as, I'm particularly interested in ones because there are lots, a lot of confusion around niacin as it oh, pertains yes. to cardiac health. Yes, yes. In regard to ascorbate, kidney stones are helped, not harmed. If you are at risk of kidney stones, it's because you're dehydrated, stay well hydrated, that skin, uh, wrist pinch test, or enough water flowing through you and herbal beverages flowing through you that you're peeing every couple of hours, then the urine is diluted enough you can't form a stone under any condition. So the notion of ascorbate and oxalate actually was something I published in the 1970s and people are finally realizing it's not a problem. Next is uh, ascorbate is going to somehow, because it can in high doses cause you to purge out toxins and fluid, that that's somehow bad for your gut except all the evidence is that your gut gets better. Uh, another myth is that, B, that uh, vitamin B12 will somehow be negatively affected by ascorbate. In the test tube, that can happen, not in people. That took eight years to put to rest. Um, any other myth that you were thinking of that I could address? That supposedly that um, take all these high doses of vitamin C, but actually cancer cells thrive on it. This is when I came now, across you know, that's, a, that's an interesting, important, and complicated question. And yes, there are definitely certain cancer cells that have the capacity to concentrate ascorbate because they were originally metabolically active cells themselves. Except uh, a rather remarkable guy in Canada named Abram Hoffer did the following experiment. He took 230 people with equally advanced cancer. Half of them got vitamin C and nutrients along with their chemotherapy. The other half of them got just the chemotherapy. The chemotherapy group lived on average six months. The group that took the vitamin C and other nutrients, including niacin, lived 112 months. At the ASCO meeting, something Elizabeth knows about, at the ASCO meeting, if you have an advance that prolongs life by one month, you could be the hit of that ASCO meeting. That's a cancer society meeting. Uh, Abram was an MD-PhD, uh, remarkable uh, in being ahead of his time in many ways, but he had trouble publishing the manuscript. He couldn't get it into the peer-reviewed journal he wanted. He published it in his own journal because that was the place he could get it published. The book is available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I know of no difference between six months and 111 months in regard to a standard conventional cancer therapy. Mm -hmm. So if the ascorbate was a harm, it should have short, not prolonged the life. So the, I, let me just, the clinical bottom line is beneficial. Um, the, the cellular in the laboratory biochemistry is much more complicated. 
So I am a biochemist. I'm happy to talk about that, but that's really a different level, if you will, of the game. Okay. Russ, let me just, uh, on that subject, since, as you know, cancer is one of the areas that I work, I have a certain skepticism about, about that study. Oh, you do? Good. Well, just on, on the, uh, the base of, um, just on the base that, um, that I have yet to see in complementary medicine any dramatic cure or near cure for cancer. But the vitamin C stuff in cancer. Did people replicate Abram Hoffer's work? He did three things. He was a psychiatrist, a biochemist, yeah. and a functional medicine physician. He gave the vitamins. The book is mostly about the vitamins, but they evoke the healing response. They removed the fear of the diagnosis. Yeah. So you're, you're right, Michael, to point out that when you look at the peer-reviewed literature in PubMed or something like that, for replications of Abram Hoffer's work, it's thin. Um, have there been efforts to replicate it? Uh, no. There have been several efforts that were funded with the intent of replicating them, but then the way the study was done was exactly what he didn't do, and you have to ask why it was done okay. that way. Um, Hugh Reardon did things very similar to Abram Hoffer at the Garvey Center for Improving Human Function in Wichita, Kansas, got the same results. His son, eventually Hugh Reardon did pass away, not from vitamin C deficit, mm -hmm. um, but his son continues that work uh, with the private funding of the Garvey family. Um, there is a physician in uh, Dornach, Switzerland, an anthroposophic physician who combines environment, attitude, uh, detoxification, and these vitamins, and they claim they get great results, and I keep urging them to publish. Okay. And I just they wanted say to flag busy. that yeah. from my point of view, since that's an area that I've really worked in, uh, and since I've heard many claims for extraordinary outcomes with, with uh, complementary therapies, that stands out as one that I would want to look at very carefully before please I endorsed do. it. No, please yeah. do. And yeah. the reason I raise it is because yeah. you may not have heard about it exactly. six other times. Exactly. But I knew Abram. I went over the data with him. Mm. His, uh, he eventually got the Rogers Prize, so he got yeah. some recognition yeah. towards the end of his life. Uh, but uh, he was a fellow who was willing to be led by the data, not by the assumptions right. or the conventions. Right. And when you replicate an innovator's work, in my opinion, you should do it with integrity and, and, and not with a lack of integrity. Other questions and comments, could please? Could you? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. The yes, nice you did. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Second half yeah. of your question. By the way, if the doctor asks you about recent memory, then that's testing your recent memory. If the doctor forgets to ask the question, you know, that's saying something about the doctor. Um, niacin can, in sensitive people especially, cause a flush. I heard about niacin at a time when I was very naive. The first time I took niacin, I took 500 milligrams. And for about an hour and a half, I sat there thinking, what a dumb son of a you are, and don't do this again. Um, so you start with low doses of niacin if you're going to use it for cardiovascular benefit, which means to lower your cholesterol in general, but it also means to protect from oxidized cholesterol. And then you start with low doses and build up slowly to higher doses. Some people are very sensitive and will, quote, flush on a very low dose. And we're actually working on that question now because we think it's more complicated than niacin, but it has to do with degranulation of histaminic little bundles in basophils and eosinophils, that we know. Um, niacin in 
doses of two to four grams a day, that's a lot of niacin, can be associated with better lipid management. In fact, in Europe, there's a pill that has niacin and a, and a diuretic and a statin all together, a so-called poly pill. Um, one of those three I would endorse. You could imagine which one. Um, so niacin is helpful, but the amounts you have to build up to take are usually substantial for people. Don't use the slow-release niacin. That can irritate the liver. Um, the old-fashioned niacin is fine. The hexanicotinate, the so-called non-flush niacin, gets the niacin in the cell and you don't flush, and that's fine. Um, so that's my niacin response. Other comments? Yeah. So two questions. One is the lymphocyte response assay. Does it test for Lyme disease? Uh, the lymphocyte response assay tests for 240 foods, up to 460 substances, but doesn't test infectious agents. Because if you're hospitable, we'll miss the one that you've got and we, because we might not test for all of them. And they, they keep changing, so you, you, they, they keep ahead of us. What we look for are the things you can control. The foods, environmental chemicals, medications, some toxins. Um, and that's what we measure in the lymphocyte response assay by ELISA. The second question is, what do you feel about carbon filtration for water? Yes, the the, the Brita type of carbon block filters are fine, but generally for a much shorter period than the company tells you, because usually the the water that you have is more contaminated than their laboratory water. Um, So so one thing is that the filter should be used one-third the time they recommend, which makes it a little more expensive. The second point is it's almost impossible to have them without them becoming contaminated. And if you measured the bugs, you'd find Pseudomonas, Shigella, things that really would shiver your timbers if you realized that was coming out of the filter, not in the filter. It's almost impossible if you've used the filter for more than a few weeks to not have some bug there. Fortunately, most of us have innate anti-bug or anti-infectious mechanisms so we don't get sick. But some people have been made sick by them. So it's, uh, that's why the home systems are so complicated and self-sterilizing and back-flushing and all that. So um, I wish I could say the answer is 995 and Brita or something like that. I can't. Charcoal is a good trap, but once the charcoal block gets full, it will actually put more off than you put in, which is not a good deal. Other questions, please. Yes. Um, do you have a private practice where people like us can come and see you? Well, thank you for that. I have the world's smallest private practice. It's been closed for a number of years. I did work with a group of people in the 70s saying, I will continue as long as you stay well. And so far, they've put up with me for house calls and dinner and things like that. Um, I, I travel. I do a fair amount of teaching. I do some thinking and research. It's unfair for someone like me who has some but limited availability to take on someone who deserves a a doctor who sits behind a desk and has office hours. Um, So I can make recommendations. We have a list of about 7,500 doctors that over the years I've trained. So if you call and give us a zip code, we'll try and give you two or three names in your area that hopefully will be uh, just as good or better. Yes. And you say call us? Uh, Yes, 1-800-525-7372, but don't all call at once. (laughs) No. Um, we have a team of client service people on both sides, the lab side and the perk side. They're separate businesses because a lab should not sell you products and a product company should not sell you lab tests. You heard me say it. 
Um, but you can call 1-800-525-7372 or 1-800-553-5472. Those are our two toll-free numbers in North America. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, what, how do you differentiate PERC from other providers, manufacturers, and are there other manufacturers and sources which you would equate as the same quality as PERC? Yes, any company that sets standards of identity that follows full pharma GMPs for quality control and has third-party post-production assays, we would recommend. We pioneered these things. We do them as part of our culture, if you will, um, and I would support any company that does that. Um, and if you know any companies like that, let me know, and I'll start mentioning them because we haven't found them yet, but we do think those standards make a difference. It's the reason why pharmaceutical quality control is excellent. Everybody who touches it is known, and you can't mess with it without telling us that's the law. That's a good law. We don't have to do that in the dietary supplement industry, and it's a pain in the first to, to do this. And we go to the companies that make these very delicate molecules, and we say, we want you to sign a standard of identity agreement you can't change without telling us. And they say, nobody else asks for this. And we say, we don't care. You, you want our money? That's what you, and they generally want the money. So they, they follow through. Now, are there other good companies? There definitely are other good companies. There are professional companies, and they will sing their praises, and, and, and I, uh, I would ask you to ask of them, do you follow full pharma GMPs? If you think that's a good idea. And Who I do. is the third party that warranties that you do that? Right. We do Eurofin. So we use the company that EPA uses for their outside criteria methods analysis. Uh, so they, analysis. they certify you, in effect. No, no. Better than certify, they do an independent blind test to make sure that the critical ingredient that's most uh, active in each lot every time is there in the amount we say it is. So in that sense, they certify us, but they actually do much more than that. But you said the critical ingredient, and I'm going to be tough here. No, 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 no. Let's talk about this. Because you also say that the way your supplements are designed, there's a whole bunch of different ingredients, Absolutely. which are all critical. Well, no, no, let's talk about outcome. that. We have LifeGuard. In the LifeGuard, there are some ingredients that cost us $5,000 a kilogram, mm -hmm. and there's some ingredients that cost us $50 a kilogram, yeah. and they're equally pure. It's just some are made a lot and some are made a little. Mm -hmm. The one that costs $5,000 a kilogram is the one we're going to assay, because I if see. you're going to short anything in the formula, that would be it. Yeah, now, it. we don't just test one out of 40. We actually test six out of 40, and we change it each lot. I see. So we do what Battelle Laboratories says you would do if you weren't sure if you could trust your vendor. Mm -hmm. And so there actually are answers to these complicated questions probably somewhere in the world if you go out and look for them, and we have and we found them. Um, and, and so we definitely look uh, at the items that would be most likely to be problematic, uh, generally the more expensive ones, and we do more than one on each product, and we vary each time so that, that neither actually we nor they know. It's actually a random number generator that tells us what, what to measure so that we don't have any bias that way. We've tried to bias this against ourselves, if you will, so that when someone like yourself, with all desire for clean and clear communication, mm -hmm. asks a tough question, we should have an answer. Yeah, good. Other questions, comments, please? Uh, you've got one, but I want to get other people. Yeah. I've got just sort of a simple question about your thoughts about vegetables and uh, organic versus 
conventional and the toxicity and the nutrition. We do recommend organic or biodynamic, which is like super organic. We definitely recommend closely grown. So locally grown but not certified organic and vine ripened, I might prefer to something cold vine ripe, um, cold organic. For example, the grapes from Chile labeled organic can be fumigated on the way because somebody made some treaty somewhere. And who taught me this? Now, I'm a doctor, I'm a biochemist. The produce man says, doctor, you're buying the organic grapes from Chile. Did you know those were fumigated? No, I didn't, I said, so I put them back. Who knew? The poor grape didn't tell. Yes. What can be done to get around? Sorry, I have to What can be done to get around reactions to high doses of vitamin C, like tongue irritation or stomach irritation? If you, if you have re- yes, if you have reactions, the question is, what can be done about vitamin C that seems to pr- be irritating or cause uh, tongue reactions or, or mucosal reactions or lip reactions? That's an impure form of vitamin C. Most vitamin C that you buy is not 100% L form, and if it doesn't say that, it's DL, which means synthetic, half of which doesn't get into you and can be irritating. So it's a very good question. I thank you for asking it because a lot of times we recommend ascorbate and we recommend what you need in the amounts of ascorbate, and people say, oh, I tried it, it irritates me. I don't want to go near vitamin C. Well, yes, the synthetic form can be. Yes, the oxidized form of ascorbate, which is still commercially available, uh, can be irritating. The fully reduced form, the fully buffered form, the all-L form, is something your body really loves, and, and I, I use the word advisedly. Um, I, I would ask, if you would, that you check and use something like our perk potency or some form that is 100% reduced, fully L form, and fully buffered, and I would almost guarantee you, because I can't guarantee the sun will rise, but in the same kind of sense, I would guarantee you it won't be the same reaction. Your body tends to throw off the things that are impure. It tends to like the things that are pure. Other questions? Yes, back Okay, I have um, two questions. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of practitioners nowadays are offering these special foot baths for heavy metal detox. I was wondering what you think of that. And then I was wondering what you think about the whole debate about, you know, red wine and dark chocolate. They're good for you. They're bad for you. They're, I know they're acidic, but, you know. Whatever. I've been recommended both ways. In, in, in the headline in regard to the foot baths and their ability to detoxify you, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. I wish it was sufficient that you could stand in this bath and the electrolyte and it does get dark and change color and stuff, but that's just because you had stuff on your feet. Um, the doctor who first recommended that has stopped recommending it years ago. But it is still going around because it, you know, it's easy and it's simple and it's not too expensive. Um, I'm not opposed to putting your feet in water or, or salt solutions or things like that. But honestly, you can't draw toxic metals out of your feet. And when I first heard it, I thought, oh, these poor people, they don't understand biochemistry, so they can easily be hornswoggled. And that's my bottom line with it. Yeah. Would the same apply then, doctor, in regard to... Um Flotation tanks. Well, now, flotation tanks as a relaxation response, as opposed to a detoxification technique, highly recommended. Um, uh, Richard, my friend who's here, studied with Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman was one of the people in the early days of flotation tanks, used to go to Glenn and Lee Perry's house, because there weren't that many tanks at that time. Um, I, uh, 
was visiting there because I was interested in these flotation tanks at the time, and this guy who was very kind of scrawny and scraggly, but fascinating, utterly fascinating, came out of the tank, wanted a towel, and it was Richard Feynman. So relaxation response by reducing noise stimuli, highly recommended. I travel with noise-canceling earphones. You know, in airports and tra mobility places, it can be pretty harsh and noisy. Um, I prefer first song with the birds in the morning and nice and quiet and easy going. So um, the, the flotation tanks sometimes are described as a detoxification system. Not They're not. But a good relaxation response, sure. It's great for that. It really can be, although you have to like silence. You know, if you're oriented towards being a Quaker, it's great. But people who like noise won't like an isolation tank because it does isolate you from all sounds. <laughs> the first time I floated, I floated for eight hours. And the, yeah, yeah, and the people, Glenn and, Glee, Glenn and Lee, were so surprised. They said, how many times have you done this before? I said, oh, no, this was my first time. They said, are you okay? I said, I think so. I'm really a little mellow, but uh, it was a really nice retreat. <laughs> oh, yes, it was a prune, right, because it's, a, it's a, a concentrated salt solution, mostly Epsom salts. But, um, so isolation tanks for relaxation, I think, are terrific. But don't overdo it. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the Epsom salts because from my experience, you know, Esalen in the 70s, it was a lot of stuff to take into the biggest organ of assimilation, which is the skin. And for people like me that swim in chlorinated pools, you know, mm. 45 minutes at a mm. time, um, you know, you mentioned the low heat sauna to get rid of the metals, but what else can we do about chlorine? Well, ideally you'd have an ozonized pool today rather than a chlorinated one, but you may not have control of that, especially if it's at a club or something like that. Um, after you swim in a chlorinated pool, I recommend baking soda. It really is very good at stripping the chlorine off the skin, and you can put just a little bit of baking soda on a washcloth or on a loofah. Don't scrub too hard because it's a, it's a, it's a dentifrice-like a thing. You know, it'll, it'll rub your skin off. But just gently let the baking soda alkalinize and restore the healthy alkalinity to your skin. Or, if you can do it, get in a salt and soda bath with a teaspoon of sesame oil. So you use Epsom salts a half a cup, baking soda a half a cup, and a warm tub of water. That will strip off any chlorinated products from the pool. Um, you do get a certain amount in your lungs. Some people can, uh, can tolerate that. Some people cannot. That's an individual matter. Um, uh, but that's that's what how I would approach it. Okay. Yeah. yeah I was curious about the uh, ascorbic like flushes. If I wanted to like take that on, where do I find information? About yes, yes. In regard to ascorbic flush, so you can find out how much you need as an individual. Yeah. It's on our website www.perkperque.org or .com. Um, if you uh, do a Google search for ascorbate calibration protocol, it will come up and you can download it. I do recommend that you look at the four-page short protocol. We have a long one for technically oriented people, but a short one because sometimes you will want to have more magnesium at the same time as the C flush. Sometimes you'll want to have repair molecules. Uh, sometimes you'll want to have uh, extra zinc uh, so that when the ascorbate gets in and gets the bad stuff out and then needs the buffering minerals like zinc and magnesium to activate the repair systems, they'll be there. Mm -hmm. So please do take a look 
Uh, sometimes you need probiotics or prebiotics so that your digestion uh, can get the most benefit from the ascorbate and not waste the ascorbate. But this is all written up in the protocol. Russ Jaffe, I just want to thank you profoundly for being with us at the New School. Thank, thank you for being interested. May we all be well and happy.